Um, so, hi everyone, my name is Sean. Uh, I've been going to Fort Street for about a year and a half or so. Uh, this is my first time giving a sermon. Oh, that's great. So much better. Okay. Um, yeah, so this is my first time giving a sermon. Uh, so please indulge me in all your grace as I speak into the mic for the first time. Uh, since I stumbled over words at my grandma's funeral, I just remembered that. Um, and as I get lost in my notes uh, and uh, nervously drink this glass of water, um, and I'm honored that you're all here for the last sermon that I'm ever going to give. Uh, a few months ago, after one of Garrett's sermons, uh, he referenced the verse about working out your faith with fear and trembling. And I remembered uh, uh, from the Christian college that I went to that in the original Greek, working out was in reference to digestion and bowels, um, which I, I'm sure we've all had fear and trembling experiences with that. And I can only assume it was in that moment where Garrett thought, you know, uh, here's somebody with wisdom to share while we're out of town. <laughs> so there I was two weeks ago, uh, mowing the lawn with my headphones in. Um, usually when I'm out and about, uh, I like to listen to the environment, be open to interactions with whoever's around me, but in my yard, there's just one place where I'm hoping to avoid an interaction with one certain neighbor. Um, and yet, over the music in my ears and the buzz of the weed whacker, uh, I heard his distinct voice uh, calling to me, and with an instant pit in my stomach, I paused, took out my headphones, and was promptly assaulted with the barrage of threats and cursing that I had been hoping to avoid. The scripture today uh, is from Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Uh, for some context, Jesus is in his garden phase. Uh, he just gave the parable of the sower, uh, and now he's got one uh, about wheat and weeds. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of the heaven of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did all these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? He replied, no, for it is in gathering the weeds that you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, collect the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. There's a lot of practical advice uh, that Jesus gives throughout the Gospels that I think we miss uh, 2,000 years on as we're in tune to find the parable and to find uh, the spiritual lesson. Um, for instance, wash the inside of the bowl before the outside. I find this one mostly relevant when camping and water is limited and so long as the inside of the bowl is clean. I count the entire bowl as being clean. Um, take the stick out of your eye before the speck in your friends. Uh, that also seems to come up more when camping. Uh, don't bury your money in the ground. Don't sow your seed on the sidewalk. Don't put new wine into old wineskins. I don't use either of those, but I do uh, reuse my Ziploc bags, often to the point of failure. 
Uh, and they usually fail in the same way. They kind of split right along the seam. And uh, the new leftovers and the old wineskins uh, ends up with food all over the shelf of the fridge. Um, and from today's verse, don't pull weeds. Uh, that was a bit of vindication to me as a kid uh, with the gardening family. Um, it was nice to hear Jesus say, don't bother pulling weeds, because I'm still looking at Jesus. Uh, a quick tour around the U.S. and our pride in our perfectly manicured lawns is uh, on full display. And in Hamtramck, where I live, uh, it's mostly true. Uh, and one exception in particular to this is my yard. Uh, I'm a flower person, I'm not a lawn person. And over the last few years, I've been converting more and more of my 30 by 30 foot yard uh, into flower gardens where I do pull weeds, but I also neglect the manicure of the grass, uh, except for the obligatory occasional mowing. Um, and in fact, I've been sowing clover and yarrow into the lawn to minimize the amount of grass uh, that I even have. Uh, and the vast majority of my flowers are uh, Michigan natives that I bought small and cheap, and so they're taking their time to reach their full potential and not anything that's going to be showing up in better homes and gardens, uh, maybe until the next person lives there. Um, but as you may have perceived, I have a next-door neighbor who is less than thrilled about this. Um, what's maybe a little different about this neighbor is I'm not sure that he's thrilled about much in life. He's a lifelong resident of my block in particular, save for a couple years where he was over in uh, Jackson. Um, but wherever he's been, he wasn't dealt a great hand. Uh, and the strategy that he settled into playing those cards is often employed with uh, threats and cursing. So when I came to the neighborhood and focused on flowers instead of grass, now any weed that shows up in his lawn, uh, he's concluded that's my fault, despite the nature of weeds uh, being weeds. Um, and he lets me know that with his repertoire of threats and cursing. But of course, that doesn't uh, end with the lawn, um, any inadequacy he identifies on my, on my house or my property, uh, any real or imagined infraction on his home and well-being, uh, whatever it is, he responds with threat cursing to the point that that's 100% of our Some more practical advice from Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've been around Jesus long enough for that to pop in my head when interacting uh, with a bully who is also literally a neighbor. And uh, I haven't passed the bar, but I do know a little bit. And I know better than the lawyer in the parable uh, than to try and test Jesus and to figure out how uh, to get out of loving this guy. Um, if any of you have interacted with me, you might guess that I don't have a whole lot of enemies. At least, I hope that's the impression I give. Uh, but it turns out the downside of that is that when somebody chooses to make an enemy of me, I don't necessarily have a lot of skills to navigate that. And so this has turned into a process of uh, trial and error uh, as I try to figure this out. So when things used to be conversational, I would try to demonstrate an interest in his life and what he's going on, uh, show him that, I'm, that I hear his complaints and I'm listening, uh, attempt to address some of his grievances, even if they are my preferences or priorities or if they're even real. 
Uh, and the only identifiable change is that it gets worse and worse uh, over time. And so for now, that's where the headphones in the yard come from. I try to ignore them, talk to the Lord, uh, pray for him, realize that he's mostly just performing. So one of the places in the Gospels where Jesus says to love your enemies and to do good to those who hurt you is when he's going through uh, this litany in a sermon of, you've heard it said this, but I say this to you instead. And so not being ordained, this still technically qualifies as a sermon. And so I'm going to try to do my own here and hope that it's not blasphemous. You've heard it said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But I say to you, love your neighbor as yourself, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your body. And a real quick aside, uh, I only learned this relatively recently, but regardless of which version you're going with, the part in there about loving yourself is uh, really critical, and literally all falls apart if you're, if you're not loving yourself. Um, that's a great sermon for somebody else to preach next year uh, when uh, Sarah and Garrett go on vacation together. Uh, so why does this semantic change matter? It's just the same words, but in a different order. And I'm not trying to say Jesus was wrong in the order he gave here, but in the few thousand years that his peers had to digest the Old Testament, uh, he felt compelled to say it to them in a different way for them to keep to the spirit of it. Uh, and in the few thousand years that we've been absorbing Jesus' words, uh, I think that we need to hear it in a different way in order to stick to the spirit of it. And the danger that I see in the original order is that when we have the presumption that we are loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind, uh, then everything else that we do is good and right and loving as well. When the experience of those who we are uh, intending to love may be quite different. It may even be the opposite of love. I've become acquainted with the phrase uh, from non-Christians uh, in the last few years as they watch the political alignment with white evangelical Christians with policies. Um, uh, that don't necessarily seem to line up with that. And that phrase goes, there's no hate like Christian love. There's no hate like Christian love. Uh, so how does that make you feel? There's some response there. Uh, imagine some people are a little bit defensive about that, but that one hit me a little bit hard when I first heard it. Maybe others are curious, and it sounds like some people uh, are already saying that's the truth. Um, just in case, uh, I've got a couple examples. They're more extreme examples to kind of demonstrate the point, and then uh, we can dig in from there. So conveniently, the founding of our country quite a few of them, because a lot of the European Christians who came over as colonists assumed that they had a manifest destiny from God, that this land was theirs to take as if uh, they were Moses going to the promised land. And it didn't matter who was there, none of that mattered. Uh, God said, this is yours to take, go and take it, was their attitude. Um, and then after they got here, they went and stole people from Africa and enslaved them and considered themselves benevolent. Uh, for forcing them into a Christianity that they wouldn't have had in Africa. And just this week, that was actually incorporated into the middle and high school curriculum in Florida, where uh, they're going to be taught that uh, it was slavery beneficial to the enslaved. Uh, 
and the Native Americans who already occupied this land and then were lied to through treaties and often killed as savages, not even worth saving. Those who did live uh, were then sent to residential schools as children where the philosophy was to kill the Indian to save the man. Uh, and part of the saving, again, was a forced uh, Christianity. And even though the Indian Child Welfare Act was just, uh, last month, was just upheld by the Supreme Court, uh, had it been overturned, it would have threatened Native American sovereignty. And it was a Christian adopted family who was at the core of that case, trying to take Native American child from their tribe. We can also see it in the bombing of abortion clinics, uh, the harassment of women seeking health services at Planned Parenthood, uh, take the removal of the right, reproductive rights, while not also guaranteeing rights for maternal and patient health, growing Christian voices advocating for the stripping of rights of LGBTQ people, and referring to trans people and drag queens as groomers. We had northern white people resisting integration and living in de facto segregated communities from a stated love of family and not wanting their kids to go to school with so-called thugs or those people. We saw Jesus saves flags among those at the insurrection at the Capitol. And I'll try to fully avoid conflating Christianity with conservative politics, but the majority of voting white evangelicals are electing officials who espouse a hatred towards those who integrate. Officials who uh, are seeking to strip necessary resources from those hungry, thirsty, naked, and imprisoned. Uh, officials who enact so-called criminal justice policies of punishment instead of grace and redemption, and then have the, gu the gall to call that love tough. In, in general, just politicians who are adding heavy burdens impossible to bear onto others that they themselves won't lift a finger to do. So I'm sure some of you have some of your own examples in life where someone claims to do something out of love for you and you received it entirely differently. Uh, it could have been the way a parent or an elder treated you and then said that they uh, were doing it because they loved you. It could have been a betrayal you felt by a romantic partner, a careless thing a friend said that they meant for good that ended up causing a fracture in your friendship. Because when we have come to the conclusion that the actions of others is sin, uh, or that the consequences of their actions is destined, destining them for hell, then we can easily also reach the conclusion that any action that we do to save that person, no matter how violent, angry, or forceful those actions are, or even how necessary those actions are, we can come to the conclusion that that is an act of love. In Romans, Paul admonishes us to not to conform to the ways of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The ways of the world are not only the world as an outside of Christendom, uh, but the ways of the worlds that we occupy, even the world of the church, the world of what we think we know to be true from what we were taught, what we've experienced, the things that we've done in the past. And so through reflecting, reconsidering, we can renew our minds uh, to make sure that we haven't conformed to something that uh, we assume is love, it is actually quite harmful. If we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, we can't assume that because we did something that we perceived as loving a quarter or half of our life ago is still loving today. Uh, Sterling Coles is uh, a musician, uh, a producer, artist from Detroit, he's a friend of friends. 
uh, friend of friends, who has uh, said that he looks at others as different iterations of himself, that he would likely be them if he had experienced love in the same way. So when he's interacting with someone who hasn't experienced much love in their life, he says, I'm not going to condemn the plant for being brown when it has the ability to be green. It has the ability to be healthy. So if I have the ability to nurture it, I'm going to nurture it. So let's use that as a promise. There's two parts in there. The first, we are who we are because of how we were loved. Or if, uh, if we had been loved differently, we would be different people. Who we are isn't fixed. Our experiences of love mixed with our biology and our other life experience are the, the ingredients of who we know ourselves to be. Secondly, we all have the ability to be green, regardless of what those experiences in our lives have been, regardless of our biology. But the same way, uh, uh, um, but because of the way some of us were loved, we have become brown plants that are lacking in nutrients. It may have been that we were planted in bad soil, like in the parable of the sower. Uh, it may have been planted in good soil, but the environment and the climate have changed. Now it's lacking the, the nutrients and necessary support that it used to have. Uh, there could be too much sun, too little sun, not enough uh, rain. There are all sorts of ways that a plant might be brown, uh, but at no fault of its own. And as Strong said, if he has the ability to nurture it, he's going to nurture it. Though we're all made in the image of God, we are all unique expressions of God's creation. And so everything about us will have some degree of difference from everyone else. All the plants in my garden don't have the same needs for sunlight, uh, water, nutrients, etc. Nor do all people need to be loved and nurtured in the exact same ways. And with the parable from the scripture today, it may not even be a matter of wheat and weeds and which one to keep and which one to pull. But sometimes we don't know which is the actual plant, and we have to wait and see how they grow and what they turn into. And it may turn out uh, that the thing that we thought was a weed, uh, destined for destruction, is actually something quite beautiful and beneficial to us. And it's by being close and taking our time to watch and learn that we can figure out what is the best response for that plant. And we can enable something to thrive. Uh, I have dandelions filed to my yard, something that many people consider weeds. Uh, dandelions were brought over uh, by Italian immigrants 150 years ago as a food source. Those things are edible. Uh, somebody made a violet lemonade from the violets in her own yard, which was new to me, and so I went and immediately picked violets and uh, used them garnish on a pie. Um, it didn't have a whole lot of flavor, but uh, it looked really nice. Um, so my neighbor on the other side of me is a man in his late 80s who has lived in that specific house his entire life, except for when he was in the Navy. And he and I have entirely different interactions than I do with the guy on the other side, because his life experiences were entirely different as well. Our interactions are usually him telling me old stories about him cramming in the neighborhood, giving me tools that he knows he's never going to need again, and me sometimes going over to help him and his wife with something. There's just this general goodwill and neighborliness between us. Uh, because each of these neighbors on either side of me have had very different experiences in their lives, my experiences with them are also very different. But it's not my role to call one wheat and the other uh, a weed. I let them both grow. 
uh, in the hopes that they both turn into something beautiful. Uh, and when I have the opportunity to provide nurture, then I do so when I'm able. Because our role is not to decide that people are leaves to be destroyed. Our role is to figure out the nurturing that people need to provide that in love. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, where the admonishment for us to love our neighbors ourselves uh, ultimately comes from, uh, we can see in the example of the re religious leaders that they actually did the right thing. Had they stopped to take care of the man who was robbed, they would have been considered unclean and unable to fill, fulfill the priestly duties that they were on their way to do. They also did the safe thing, because if they had been harmed by pausing on this dangerous road to take care of someone, uh, then they could have lost their ability to fulfill God's calling to them. So while they did the right thing, and they did the safe thing, uh, Jesus instead uses the example of the Samaritan, who was considered uh, the cultural enemy of the Jews at the time, and a Gentile, uh, who we might now consider as a, a non-Christian. Uh, Jesus used the Samaritan uh, to demonstrate the actions that are good and that are loving. And so this is the danger that I see in the, Jesus, in the order Jesus originally gave. We can easily be so self-righteous in our presumption of love that whatever we're doing is the right thing because we love God, and so we know better. Uh, but in doing what we're so convinced of ourselves is the right thing to do, we may have then also missed an opportunity to love. And by making ourselves available to others as, as the Samaritan did, and engaging them to figure out what love they need, then we can start to discern what each of our neighbors needs to be loved. By paying attention to how people respond to love, we can fine-tune our loving actions. There are these three examples in the Gospels uh, where the men of the story, uh, and I think even us as readers sometimes, are eager to see the judgment that Jesus is about to give out. Uh, there's uh, the woman who we know as being caught in adultery, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well who uh, was with a man who wasn't her husband and has been with many men in the past. Uh, and the woman pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' head and washing his feet with her hair. Uh, but instead of condemning them, which we would easily judge uh, was out of love um, to save them from their sins, he instead responded by making himself available to them to discover what they uniquely needed to hear uh, to be loved and to move their lives in the direction of God. Um, Bessel van der Kolk is a therapist and author who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score that gives a history of the explorations into um, how we can successfully treat trauma. Uh, and the title itself alludes to how our biology becomes a record of the love and the hurt that we have received. And he has a saying in the introduction, um, that our capacity to harm each other is matched by our capacity to heal. And in Jesus, we have this example of the wounded healer who can sympathize with us because he suffered as we suffered. Uh, Henry Nouwen is an author and theologian who has turned this concept into an entire book where he expands on this discussion about how the things in which he was hurt and needed to heal from can be the things he relies on to identify where others are hurting and in need uh, and that he can then participate in that healing. So I'm not suggesting uh, that we ignore ourselves and our experiences or to deny our intuition about how people are hurt and in need of healing. 
and by being vulnerable with ourselves is when we can open ourselves up to the healing that can be the healing that other people also need. But once we have gone down that path of healing, then we have to be there for others patiently as they go down their own path and not just them ex uh, expect them to magically arrive at the same place that we've arrived at through uh, many years of uh, work and healing. Uh, and if we love others only out of our hurt and without healing, then we're risking perpetuating that same hurt onto others. When we see someone in prison or in desperate need, it's often our first curiosity to ask, well, what did you do to deserve this? But a more loving question to ask might be, how have you been hurt? What's the healing that you need? This isn't to ignore any harm that may have been caused, but it's also not to subtly determine whether we think what they did is deserving of grace or if we can just write them off as undeserving sinners. When we don't condemn the plant for being brown is when we can recognize that it's often hurt people who are hurting people. When we can discover the healing that they need so that we can provide that nurture for them to be green when it's in our ability to do so. And loving out of our hurt is an easy thing to do. By being made in the image of God, it is our nature to love. And so the love that we have uh, received from others can be out of their own unhealed hurt. And in the same way that we then need to extend, uh, that we need that grace from others as we figure out how to love as wounded healers, so too do we need to extend that same grace to others as they're figuring it out. We love to see a 30-second video online of uh, the transformation of a reluctant, abused dog turned into a loving pet through careful love and nurtures, nurture. But when other people have been abused and oppressed, uh, we often blame them for their own misery and tell them to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. It's not my responsibility. Uh, and we can be more gracious to animals sometimes uh, than we can be to other people. Because our love should first be curious, and then gentle, and soft, and compassionate, and listening for understanding. We get a warning about the hubris of our presumptive love and the parable Jesus gave about the sheep and the goats, which in my 30-foot yard is not one that I have a practical application for. Um, but in the parable, the goats that are separated from the sheep uh, go to God and say, well, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, naked, a stranger, or a prison, and not help? And God's response is, whenever you didn't do those things for the people who you considered least deserving of it, who society has judged to be the least of you, and you didn't do it for me either. So note that the difference here between the sheep and the goats isn't who loves God more, who follows the law more, but who loved their neighbor and how. And although as a grand philosophy uh, from Jesus is that everyone is our neighbor is still foundational, uh, the word neighbor insinuates some measure of proximity. In the same way that the law was prescribed from on high uh, by God through Moses and that everyone failed to follow it, God's response wasn't to command yet more law and obedience on top of that. It was to take an entirely different approach and enter directly into the lives of the created. God came to be Emmanuel, to be God with us. And this, then, is our example of love to follow. Not condemning obedience to a one-size-fits-all law, 
uh, as if that would bring healing, but drawing near to those uh, who are in need of love, that we may learn how to love them as God loves us. Uh, I can't stand on my porch and command or instruct my plants on how to be healthy and expect that that's going to do any good. Uh, so the love, our love requires that we are available, that we are present, and that we are close. But that also that we are vulnerable with ourselves and others, uh, willing to listen, willing to learn, and to see what the most loving thing is that this person needs. Uh, but also it requires accountability, that we are accountable to the person that we are attempting to love. Uh, accountable to ourselves, that we are able and have the capacity to love them. And that we are being as loving as we think we are even being. Which requires us to be open to feedback. Requires us uh, to be open to the possibility that how we have presumed to be loving in the past uh, isn't still received as love today. It requires us to observe others in the way that they are loving differently from we are. We can even look outside of the church to do that. Some of the most profound examples Jesus called out of those who were really picking up what he was laying down uh, was the Samaritan, the tax collectors, and the centurion. Almost never was it religious leaders. Sometimes, love your neighbor as yourself is reduced to treat others as they want to be treated. It's much more loving to say treat others as they want to be treated. When we prioritize loving our neighbor as ourselves, loving our neighbors as they want to be loved, uh, and as people created in God's image, making ourselves available, vulnerable, and accountable to them, then they are truly loved by us. Uh, and we are truly loving others. And by consequence, we are then loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And we have finally then arrived at the full statement. Love your neighbor as yourself, and in so doing, you are loving God all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I'm not standing up here as an exemplary figure who has figured this all out. I'm here because I made a joke about how our faith journey is like diarrhea. Um, and each week during confession, I often think to myself, uh, who didn't I love as well as I could have? Who did I hate? Uh, and often week after week after week, uh, I'm thinking about this same neighbor needing to confess my sins about how I have regarded him and others like him in my heart. But hopefully we can all start together from the same place, that we don't condemn the plant for being brown, because all plants have the ability to be green. And when we have the ability to provide nourishment, that's what we're going to do.